So today we're going to be reading from Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, and it's not in your bulletin, so if you can, if you have a Bible, to look up your Bible or on your phone app. And speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may bring others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny, for leading us in prayer and reading for us this morning. Um, we are uh, once again in this passage. Oh, by the way, the reason everything is not, you don't have everything in a bulletin is because Megan was gone, so I got to do the bulletin, and I was screwing things up all over the place, and putting the Bible passage in was one of the ways I was doing that, so that's why you didn't get it. But the main verse that we're going to be looking at is right there at the top of the sermon notes page, we're going to be looking at verse 28 that says anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Uh, we are <clears throat> making our way through these verses in Ephesians, and like I said uh, uh, before, it, it's like traversing this mountain range. You have in these very few verses, Paul providing nearly comprehend a nearly comprehensive statement on a christian ethic how a christian how a follower of jesus christ is supposed to live in the world and so we've talked about truth versus falsehood and communication and how we're supposed to speak with other we talked specifically last week about our emotions and specifically the emotion of anger and how we're supposed to use that emotion in a way that is pleasing to god and today, we're going to look at this principle of work and the economy. And um, let me just say, uh, right at the outset, again, we just keep scratching the surface on each of these subjects. Hopefully, what happens is uh, we are able in the, in the service to, to build a framework around which to discuss these things, and hopefully in engage groups, you go a little deeper and maybe a little farther. Secondly, using that metaphor of put off and put on. You'll remember, if you do have a Bible, you just look up in verses 22 and verses 24. Paul talks about how we have to put off the old self and how we have to put on the new self. We talked about that a number of weeks ago, that, that a follower of Jesus Christ is called to put off this old self when he says, put off stealing. Basically, anyone that has been stealing should steal no longer, must steal no longer, put off stealing, and put on what? Put on work, but must work 
And what is work? Work is doing something useful with your own hands. And why should you work? So that you may have something to benefit, something to share with those in need. I promise you, I can't prove it. I always say things in the service that I can't prove because I don't have time to prove, but I promise you, this verse is absolutely astounding for the implications it has with respect to what work is, why we work, the purpose of work, the goal of work, and what actually stealing is from a biblical perspective. And as I said, hopefully we'll be able to gain a framework and, uh, together this morning, and then you can go a little deeper in your engaged groups. We're going to look at three things. You can see them uh, very quickly. Uh, I pointed out again in the bulletin. Uh, what is stealing? The definition of work and the purpose of work. What I should have called it was the opposite of work, the definition of work and the purpose of work, but I didn't think about that in time. Uh, I thought of that this morning, and I'm pumped because that gives me the proper, you know, the right organization of the points and that's always a big deal to preachers when they come up with that so i had to share with you the opposite of work the definition of work and the purpose of work so here we go first of all paul describes actually stealing not just as a a thing that is bad in and of itself he connects it to work when he says anyone that must anyone Anyone who is stealing must steal no longer, but must work. What he's saying is, is that stealing in some way, shape, shape or form is the opposite of work. He's going to go on to define work of that which, as being that which is useful, okay, with your own hands, and therefore stealing is not useful. What is he talking about? What is stealing? Stealing, according to the Bible, is this. It is, the, it is willfully taking what is not yours to enrich yourself willfully taking what is not yours to enrich yourself in other words you 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 find someone who has something that you want you take it from them and you enrich yourself by diminishing them you improve this of another that's basically what stealing is but the reason it's so bad The reason it's so dangerous is because Paul is arguing here that it is symptomatic of a much deeper problem. In each of these situations, when Paul says, don't steal, when he says, speak the truth, and don't don't uh, speak falsely towards others, when he says all these things, sin here is stealing, but there's something underneath it that makes stealing so so dangerous and so uh, uh, hurtful towards the body of Christ, and that's self-centeredness. Behind stealing, underneath stealing, is always egocentrism. Do you know what egocentrism means? Egocentrism means uh, having a, a, a high regard for the needs of the self at the expense of others. That's basically what it is. And Paul is saying that behind stealing lies this egocentrism, this self-centeredness. And it's always behind all forms of stealing, whether you are stealing a pencil from the corner store when you're a little child, or you fudge on your taxes in order to hold back a little bit from the federal government, or you are embezzling millions of dollars Uh, from an investor behind it is always 
self-centeredness. Even if you say, let's take the tax thing, because people often say, well, you know, I'm, the government wastes my money. The government doesn't use it properly. The government is stealing from me. Taxes were supposed to be a world war measure, and we're still, we haven't had a world war for a long time, and therefore uh, we shouldn't be taxed anymore. What you're doing is, is you're justifying your selfishness by trying to argue that your law, your belief about what is right and what is wrong, is actually more important than the law of the land in which you live. And so you're trying to better yourself at the expense of others. Now, what this means then is that the prohibition of stealing is not just don't take what's not yours. That's what we tell our children when we're teaching them about the principle of, of not stealing. It means don't do anything to better yourself at the expense of another. That's really what's behind the prohibition not to steal. So when the Eighth Commandment says, thou shalt not steal, what you're supposed to think in your head is, I'm not supposed to do anything to better myself, to improve myself at the expense of another. Some of you uh, may have heard of this document called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and in this document, which was written in the 1600s, they have these things called catechisms. There's a shorter one, and there's a larger one. And in those documents, the catechisms, what they do is, is they describe what the Bible teaches about something or what the Bible means when it says something. So in the larger catechism, a question is asked, what is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? What's the Eighth Commandment? Thou shalt not steal. Okay. What is forbidden in the Eighth Commandment? Listen to the list, okay? I just looked it up for interest's sake, and I was blown away. Listen. Theft. Robbery kidnapping, slave catching, and receiving anything that is stolen. And I just throw this out. Those of you who have bought used cell phones off Kijiji. Okay. Fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, moving the marks of property boundaries, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, taking advantage of the poor by charging them interest on loans, bribery, harassing lawsuits, unjust detainments, unjust removal of people from their land, to enhance the price, unlawful callings, I don't even know what that means, all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or enriching ourselves. That's number two. So, well, then, what is work? And the Bible's definition of work is actually revolutionary, okay? It was revolutionary then, when it was written, and it's revolutionary today. What, when someone, when you ask somebody today, in our context, what is work? The answer is typically this. It's what I do for a living. What do you, what do you do for a living? Where do you work? What do you do? That's kind of how we think about work. And in, 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 in this definition, uh, we're saying that, that through our work, basically, we make money so that we can do what we really want to do, which is not work. We, we are working hard to amass a certain amount of capital in order to free ourselves up from doing the things that we don't want to do 
from 9 to 5 or 8 to 6 or some of you from 7 to 7 or worse in order that I can finally go and do the things that I do want to do with that capital. So it's simply making a living. Some of you remember in the olden days Freedom 55 on TV, those commercials that you could find a way to amass enough to be free, Freedom 55, right? Free to live the life you want to live by the time you're age 55. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, except, hmm, it sounds a lot like stealing. Because the goal behind the work is personal enrichment. It's self-centeredness. It's enriching yourself. Now, you may say, but not at the expense of others. Okay, fine. But it's a far cry from the biblical definition of work that Paul gives us right here when he says work is doing something useful. Anyone that's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful, and we'll get to the with their own hands in a minute. But the Greek word for doing something useful there is literally what is good. Doing what is good. Other, other translations of this verse say doing honest work, or even just doing what is good. Here it's described as what is useful, and scholars will tell useful to the human race. It is the way that you contribute to the human community. It's the way that you are useful to the world. When you do something that contributes to human flourishing. And if you think about it, work in and of itself is actually a astounding, it's a remarkable thing in and of itself. I, I know that sounds weird, but stick with me here. It is an amazing gift from God, okay? If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, you discover that human beings were actually created to work. When God made Adam and Eve, our first parents, he put them in the garden. And he didn't put them in the garden to sit Mai Tais and go for swims and swing off of vines and just hang out. Okay? He put them in the garden to tend that garden, to cultivate that garden in fact, he created them after a divine pattern, meaning he created them after himself. When you go back one chapter earlier to Genesis chapter 1, you discover that God himself was a worker because he's the one who planted it. He's the one who made everything in the universe and created them good. And so we are created after this divine pattern to work. Now, you go one chapter later from Genesis chapter 2, and in Genesis chapter 3, we discover that work has been cursed because Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against God and therefore sin entered the world and now work has become cursed but work is not a curse and that's a seriously important distinction see the Greeks thought that work was a curse in itself work was supposed to be avoided because it was uh a curse in and of itself. And modern people think about work that way very often too. They're always trying to find a way to avoid it. The Greeks did it through, uh, did it through slaves. Modern people do it through a curse. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. Work has been cursed, but work in and of itself is a good thing. And here's why. Think about this. Work is the way that civilization flourishes. It's the way that we flourish as a community. If I work doing something useful for eight hours a day, the money I earn 
can get myself, can get me more of the things I need than I could ever accomplish on my own, just doing it myself. Like, imagine growing your own food, having to grow your own food, make your own furniture, make your own clothes, make your own shelter, raise your own kids. No, wait, that one's good. You're supposed to raise your own kids. But imagine, imagine if you had to do all those things yourself. What I can, I can buy not in one day's worth of work, but in several days' worth of work, I can buy a table and set of chairs. I promise you, in a month of working 10-hour days, I could not build myself a table and a set of chairs. Now, that's a skill issue as much as it is an opportunity issue, but do you understand that when each of us is working, doing something useful with our hands, contributing to human society, we do far more than any of us could ever do on our own. Who of us could build this? And if somebody says, I can, I really want to get to know you because you are a genius. And even if you could, like let's say you're Robinson Crusoe and you're living on a deserted island and you are making your own shelter and your own clothes and all that kind of stuff, you're only doing it for yourself. You're not building a civilization that way. You're not building a society that way. You see, work is what weaves us together interdependently Have an other-centered root. It has to have a community-centered root. Do you understand? Now, there's two quick implications before we move on. The first one is this. If that's true, if what the Bible says about work is true, then that means there can be great joy and satisfaction in doing the work you do. In doing the work you do. Because when you do something that makes you useful to the broader community, to the world, you are tapping into how you were created. We were all created to contribute to this world. And so when this menial type of work, as long as it's useful. Dorothy Sayers, who uh, was a brilliant British essayist in the first half of the 20th century, she wrote an, uh, an essay called Why Work? And in it, she tells the story of a conversation she had with a surgeon who told her that the vast majority of doctors go into their uh, line of work for the purpose of making a living. It provides them something on the other side. It provides them a certain lifestyle because you make a lot of money. It uh, provides them prestige. It provides them reputation. It might even provide them power. It might provide uh, opening doors to other kinds of labor that give them even further influence, etc. They very often, he said, were not necessarily going into work to relieve suffering, into, uh, sorry, into being doctors to relieve suffering. But then he says this, he says, you know, during World War II, many men, not just doctors, but men of all kinds of different uh, walks of life, they found it very satisfying and rewarding to be in the army. Even though they were putting their life on the line and it was dangerous work and they were far away from their families, they did something not just to make a living or not just to get pay, because the pay was lousy in the army anyway, but for, and I quote, for the sake of getting something done that really needed doing. 
In other words, they were committing to something bigger than themselves. And that is the key to work being satisfying. That is the key to work being fulfilling. And any job, if it's done for that purpose, to be useful to, to society, can be meaningful. I mean, teenagers often have uh, a period of their lives where they do what they would call menial tasks, stuff that they find boring, stuff that they don't like to do. It's, it doesn't excite them. It doesn't interest them. Maybe they don't think it meets their gift set or whatever. They don't know what their gifts are anyway, so whatever. But, um, but even a teenager doing a part-time job for the sake of being useful to someone, even if it's just their employer, can provide them with a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. Okay? Secondly, all of work done this way, from this mindset, is honorable and is equally honorable, regardless of the pay, regardless of the prestige and the reputation that comes with it, okay? Notice that Paul says each, of, each one of you must work doing something useful with his own hands. He's not just contrasting that with stealing, like stealing is not useful with your own hands because you're using your hands to take and that's not useful. That's not what he's saying. It's part of what he's saying, but what he's really saying is, is he's taken a shot at the Greeks and the Romans. See, the Greeks and the Romans said that manual labor, especially all work, but especially manual work, was demeaning and degrading. And if you wanted to be respectable, you had to avoid it at all costs. That's what you meant, made slaves do. Do menial, manual labor. And today, there is a sense of that, it seems. If people want a respectable career and, you know, working with your hands isn't necessary. Nobody wants to work anymore. Now, they were, they were lamenting how hard it was to find employees that wanted to do uh, manual labor. Not menial labor, but manual labor. Working with their hands. That meant, you know, at the end of the day, you were kind of physically tired and maybe even a little bit sore. Uh, thank God for Epsom salt baths, but whatever. Uh, but people didn't want to do that anymore because it was beneath them, it seemed. And it was very, very hard for them to find these kinds of employees. And in the church, sometimes you get this idea that there is a sacred, sacred secular divide, right? So people who are in full-time Christian missionary, pastors and missionaries and that kind of stuff, well, they're doing, they're doing honorable work for the Lord. And the rest of us, we should just go out and work hard in the world and make as much money as we can to give to those people so that they can do the work of the Lord. And, and in, according to the Bible's definition of work, anything that is done, whether you are the milkmaid, milking the cow, or you are the preacher in the pulpit, Martin Luther said, if you are doing it for the glory of God, he is equally pleased by what you do. Equally pleased by what you do. And you know, I was thinking about this. I was just kind of reminiscing about this, or reminiscing, not reminiscing, ruminating on this. And it struck me, like, people who clean for a living, not considered a highly respectable job in our society. It doesn't pay well, that's for sure, generally speaking. But you know how desperately dependent upon cleaning we actually are? Like, if nobody cleans the toilet, we eventually all die. It's true. When it's done with honor for, for the sake of being useful, it is honorable. Now, sometimes we might say, you know, um, there are people getting paid for very not-so-useful jobs, and that's true. 
that is the case. You can ask my wife what she thinks of professional sports uh, people getting paid what they get paid. But that's an injustice that is the result of sin because work... Uh, okay, so the definition of work is doing something useful with your own hands. What's the purpose of work? Paul says, so that you may have something to share with those in need. Wow. Wow. This is, in, this, this is going the extra mile. All right? I, don't, I don't know if there is another ethic out there that goes this far when it just... To say you don't steal or to be told don't steal, is no, it's not enough for you to respond to that and say, okay, I'll just go get a job. Paul is saying that the actual opposite of stealing is generosity. So the thief, if he wants to stop being a thief, it's not good enough for him to just stop taking stuff. He has to start giving. The purpose of work, it seems, is to make money so you can give it away. It's to be generous. Then you're not a thief. Now, why, why does the Christian ethic go that far? Why is generosity such an important ingredient to work? Two reasons. Two reasons. The first one is this, because everything is God's. I can't go into this in depth with you because of time, but understand this. The consistent, consistent teaching of the Bible is that everything is God's. Even your income, even your house, even your car, even the clothing on your back, all the things that you own, all your possessions, where they, whether they be liquid or hard assets, okay, the world and all who live in it, the Bible says. And human beings are therefore trustees of the, of the things that God owns, whether it's our stuff or the natural environment around us and the resources of the world etc all these things we are trustees of god is the owner and that's why when you read through the old testament what you discover very quickly is is that when the people of god are not generous god does not call them stingy he doesn't say oh you guys are a bunch of ebenezer scrooges what he does call them is robbers he says you are thieves you are robbing me you go to Malachi chapter 3, and it's in your for engage group section, so you can look at it later if you want. God is judging the people for stealing from him. Why? Because they're withholding their tithes. He says, you're robbing me. You're just a trustee. You have to do with my stuff what I say. Look, let's say you have some rich person that you are the trustee of their estate. And for some crazy reason, they decide that they want to give all their money to some wacky charity. And in search of wacky charities, I went on the interwebs where you can find all sorts of wacky things. There is actually a charity called the Tall Club, which exists, just for interest sake, interest sake, to advance the cause and interests of tall people around the world. That's right. By the way, they give out scholarships to high school students, girls that are 5 foot 10 and taller, and boys that are 6 foot 2 and taller. Look it up. There's a Canadian chapter in Toronto. You might actually score a scholarship to them. 
But if you're, trustee, if you're the trustee and, you're, and the owner of the money says, give it all to the tall club, and you say, that's ridiculous, I'm not giving it to that, I'm giving it to Grace Valley Church, <laughs> you are guilty of embezzlement. You don't have the right to do with it what you want, even if you think what the owner wants to do with it is crazy. And so when God says, it's mine, and that's true, and he says, give it away, be generous, when we don't do that, we are robbing our creator. Second thing, though, is because generosity is the natural outworking of putting on the new self. Putting on the new self means stealing, right? Or sorry, the verse says stealing is selfishness. It's, it's focusing on my needs, my wants, my desires. The gospel doesn't come in and just say, stop it. Stop being so selfish. Bad you. Change your ways. The gospel comes in and says, look, in Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich for your sakes, became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. What is he talking about? He's talking about how Jesus, who had all the wealth and all the riches of the universe, who owned absolutely everything, he laid it aside, he came into this world, he walked among us, and he was a poor, homeless wanderer. At one point he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Where do you think the Son of Man was laying his head before the Incarnation? In the bosom of the Father. In the glory of heaven. And he laid all of that aside. Why? He bankrupted himself. Why? He held nothing back. Why? To save us. So that we can sing songs like, When death was arrested and my life began. When we can say that there is an eternal inheritance that awaits me when I die and I go to be with Christ at the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation, everything that I see will be mine. He has held nothing back. That's why. That's why. That's why. Remember verse 24. I know you don't have it, but verse 24 Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and, and holiness. Friends, radical generosity is part of being like God. It's you and I growing in true righteousness and holiness. So a Christian doesn't say, I'm generous because that's the way I get stuff from God. If I put more money in the plate or if I write that check for this charity or something, God looks down and he says, you're a good guy and I'm going to take you to heaven because you're a good guy. No, no, no. A Christian writes the check because a Christian looks around and says, if I give up a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, a hundred thousand of my own bucks, I cannot even begin to diminish my bank account at all because I am richest, rich beyond my wildest dreams in Christ. Now, some of us get that, some of us don't. You know which category you fit into. But let me just say that regardless of which category you fit into, it's not through guilt or self-satisfaction that you should be given. So those of you who are like, yeah, I'm giving lots. 
Don't get self-satisfied. And those of you who aren't as generous as you should be, don't walk out of here going, oh, I suck. You do, but don't, don't, don't leave here yet. Commit to the going back to the gospel. Commit to going back to the gospel. Don't go back to your wallet and try to white-knuckle yourself into opening it up a little further. No, go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go back to the cross. See your Savior dying in your place. See your Savior saying, I know that you hold on to your, your wealth in a way that you shouldn't. I know that's what you're like. I know you don't trust me enough to give it away because you think that you won't have enough to make it through your life, even though I sent Jesus to die and spilled his blood for you, and therefore you can be sure that I will never let you down and I will take completely total care of you. You need to go back to that so that when you do walk out of here, your commitment to generosity is not rooted in guilt, but it's rooted in grace. It's not rooted in, this is what I gotta do, it's rooted in, this is what he's done. I'm really into Mark's uh, way of ending sermons right now, so I'll say it again, that's all I got. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the depth of your truth that pierces our hearts, but also uh, of moving in our lives um, that is exciting and that is pushing back from us. And you call us not to do that either. So we pray that we will have the, the capacity the grace, the trust to work, be useful so that we have contributed to our society and also have something to help those in need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.